You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Faith and fear. I want to give three backgrounds for what we're going to do, and then um, we'll see how they play out. One is to address that question religiously, right, is... Um, are you supposed to be, is like your attitude supposed to be, right? even though I walk in the, the valley of the shadow of death, I have no fear. So maybe fear is a fundamentally, it's a fundamental religious failure to experience fear. That's one idea to think about, maybe, right, or not. A uh, second thing to think about, of course, is um, a parallel idea, right, which is Franklin Roosevelt's notion that the only thing to fear is fear itself. Uh, right? Do we think that's true? Why would that be true? Um, why would that be true if it is, or would it not be true if it isn't? And the third is that um, Socrates, um, in, in both in the Republic and in a dialogue called the Latches, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, discusses the concept of courage and the question of whether courage involves a lack of fear or courage involves overcoming fear or courage uh, involves knowing what to fear. All right, so we should think about that framing that framing as well um, is the absence of fear courage or is courage facing something that could legitimately be a source of fear and either not being afraid or not allowing that fear to paralyze you and enabling you nonetheless to make judgments about what sorts of things are worth risk. Uh, right. So we could try and figure out whether fear is a natural concomitant of risk. Is it that certain people are inevitably afraid when they, right, when there's risk um, or is it possible that if you if you understand the risks and you're making right if you really understood the risks and you're giving putting everything in its proper proportion then you won't be bothered because that's just um, right that's just the kind that's just the choice that you're um, that you're making. Okay, so we're going to start with um, with the Radak. All right, the first sort the the um, the first source uh, on the pus the pusik is uh, in this right when Yaakov is um, when Yaakov hears that Esav is coming towards him so it says. So the issue we're going to be addressing all the way through is what's the difference, if any, between Vayira and Vayetzer? Uh, uh, why is it that he's very afraid, Yira Ma'od, but not right, but not very not, not very Vayetzer, if you think that's Pshat? Uh, right, what would be the difference between the Yira and Vayetzer? So the first position we'll take is Radak. And Radak says, and this is a position Radak takes often, in uh, in his commentary, uh, I think uh, Dr. Mordechai Cohen of uh, the Revel School wrote about this. Radak says, "Vayira vayetzer, kefal ha'inim ha'inyan b'milot shonot l'rov yirato." So Radak says that there is no difference between vayira and vayetzer, uh, right? And the whole right, it's kefal ha'inyan, right? Kefal ha'inyan means that the it says the same thing twice. It conveys the same content. Um, it says the same content twice. Uh, but in different words, because he was, in fact, um, very scared. Right? So it's just another kind of intensifier. Okay, so this is a position where Doc takes all the way through in, in poetry, that he thinks that even though you know, much, of, uh, much of biblical poetry is constructed in parallel, um, in par- parallel halves of sentences, and you know, a notion that Tanakh is supposed to be hyper-efficient seems to suggest, as the Malbim says, that you have to find a difference between each half, uh, Professor Kugel says the same thing, but the Radak doesn't. The Radak thinks you can just say the same thing twice. Okay, so that's our baseline, right? Is do you think that's a plausible claim that Vayirav Yaakov Ma'od Vayitzer Lo is just 
an intensifier even of Vayira Me'od. Okay, Bechor Shor. Uh, uh, the link isn't working for you guys? Okay, I'm going to share screen then. My fault. Um, I, I, uh, Deborah's computer, I'm not so good at this, so we'll just put it on, just do this, and I'll try and keep track of the chat anyway. Um, okay, so at this point, uh, assuming everybody can see my screen, if you can't see my screen, you should tell me. Um, right, so Bechor Shor, Bechor Shor says the, um, says the following. Because he didn't know what to do. Because, he said, right, said, says, this is what Yaakov's thinking. If I knew that Esav were intending to do evil to me, then I would try and fight, or to run away, or to write, or to find a fortified place. But now, maybe Esav is only coming to honor me. And so Yaakov says, if I run away, so then I am going to provoke, right, by running away, by showing Esav that I that I believe that he has evil intentions towards me, I will in fact cause him to have evil intentions, right? He quotes, quotes a marvelous um, popular, popular saying that uh, anybody, who, anybody who runs away, there'll be lots of people to chase them. Um, okay. Yes. Um... Okay, for some reason I can't see the chat, so I'm going to stop sharing for a sec just so I can find out what that was. Ah, okay, thank you. Um, okay. Um, yeah, okay. Um, okay, so the, um, right, so the says Yaakov's stuck. But if Asaph really intends evil, right, then how am I supposed to stand up to him? He's got 400 men with him. So Yaakov, so Bechorshur so says, is that Yaakov is afraid and Vayetzer is that it's not just if he's af- if he's were afraid, but he knew how to act, then he would overcome his fear. But he's afraid, and he ha- and he can't do anything about it because he's in a he's in a situation where right or catch twenty two or a bind or things like that. So the Chorshor right thinks the Vayetzer is a condition different than fear. Vayetzer is a condition of sort of a frustration, right? Cause right when you have. Fear and there's no way to overcome the fear because there's nothing whatsoever to do. All right, so I think it's a very interesting and sensitive psychological reading. Um, Chizkuni thinks that no, we need. Right, Chizkuni starts starts um, starts raising the question of, but why should Yaakov be afraid of anything? Right, Yaakov's doing this because God told him to go back to his land. Uh, right, God promised to care for him. So is it legit? Is it legitimate for Yaakov to be afraid. So Chizkuni says, uh, he frames it in a very narrow way. He says, right, Since at the end of last week's parasha, right, Yaakov meets angels who are coming to guard him. Um, why is he afraid of Esau? He's got angels to protect him. So the Chizkuni has a very cool answer. Right? He says that actually the, the, the angels that Yaakov saw were two camps and they were really, right, and they really one of them was for him, but the other was for Esau. And if you take this in the idea generally right, that Rashi puts out later, that when Yaakov is both alone and fighting later on, that he's actually having a wrestling match with Esau's angel. So Chizkuni says, Yaakov doesn't know whether the angels are going to protect him. Right? The, right? the angels are on the same standoff that he is, and therefore Yaakov still has a right to be afraid, despite the angels. Okay, very nice. Uh, decide if you want to put, you know, right? there are angels in the story. There's no way to avoid the fact that Yaakov meets angels. Uh, there's right. There's the ambiguity because Yaakov sends Malachim, 
At the beginning of this week's parsha, does that mean he sent real angels or he sent agents? That we don't, right? That we don't know. So, right? So Chizkuni says all the psychology of Yaakov is built around the angels. He doesn't know whether the angels are for him or against him, or the angels are equally matched. Okay. Ibn Ezra, uh, sorry, Ibn Ezra takes the um, an approach which can which parallels. Um, Radak. He doesn't see anything different between Vayira and Vayitzer necessarily. So this, I should point out, this Ibn Ezra, uh, which is labeled as Perish, Hash, Perish Shlishi. Uh, so some of you may know that Ibn Ezra in the... We always had, only had one commentary of Ibn Ezra in the standard Mikro'od Kedolot. Then when the Torah Chaim um, Mikro'od Kedolot from Masada of Cook came out, the one in block print. So then there were two commentaries of Ibn Ezra, the Perish, the Perish Aruch and the Perish HaKatsar, the short and the long commentaries. Um, he wrote commentaries on commission, and so somebody else commissioned the new commentary after the first one, so he wrote another one. Uh, and then, but I found it this week on Alatura that uh, it, it, that there's a third commentary by a student of Ibn Ezra, which only exists in fragments. One fragment was published by uh, Maurice Friedlander in the early 20th century, late 19th century, and apparently Alatura has just found a manuscript that they're identifying as as part of that as well. So this is a new thing. The Parish Shlishi of Ibn Ezra and Brishis, the third commentary, never saw it before. And he says something quite striking. He says, Ki Yaakov Avinu lo hayag lo libo. Yaakov Avinu did not have Gevura. Uh, now, Gevura is a hard word to translate. To translate. Uh, you know, literally, we would translate Gevura is manliness. Uh, right? Manliness um, in Greek becomes a virtue. And, in, um, and really... It refers to something, I think, resembling what we would call, uh, what in, Ameri- in English we tend to call courage now. Uh, right? So Yaakov you know, did not have Gevura, right? Because Gevur is man, right? That's, that's why Gevura is, Gevura is manliness, uh, right? Which is what virtue is, because Vir is man. Um, Yaakov didn't have this Gevura in his heart. Al-Kain Pachad. Therefore, he was, right? Therefore, he was afraid. Even though he was strong. Um, he, had, he was powerful. Because there are people who are weak and nonetheless have Gevura in their hearts. Because Gevura is a quality that belong, that is part of the that belongs in the heart, uh, right? It's, or, um, or in the mind, and not it's not a physical property. So there are people who are weak, but nonetheless are Giborim in their heart, because Gibor is only hard. And there are powerful people, with their hands and arms, but they have no Gvura in their heart. Chabezra says that, uh, it seems to me, that lack of fear is virtue, virtuous, but Yaakov was, you know, if, you know, one hesitates to say it, but this commentary seems to say Yaakov was a coward. He was afraid, even though he had no reason to be afraid because he had sufficient power. Um, but even though he had sufficient power, Yaakov was afraid. So this is a, right, so Ezra takes, right, Radak starts off by saying that, right, that the, the, the verse is emphasizing how afraid Yaakov was. Um, and then, right, then uh, Bechor Shor says he's, that it's not, right, he's afraid in a way that is very human. Uh, he's afraid, he's frustrated because he has nothing to do, but maybe if he had something to do, he would, right, he would be afraid. On the other hand, uh, right, we right, we often frame it as you know, that fear is paralyzing, and if it hadn't been for fear, maybe he would have been able to make a decision. Uh, Chizkuni says that Yaakov has a basis for fear, 
because he doesn't right because he can't really rely on God. Right? If God is sending angels the other way, so it's not a good thing when you when, when there might be angels against you, and that's the whole right. So he's not sure which way God favors, and maybe that's his reason. And Ezra says, no, you know, really, there's no justification for Yaakov's fear. Yaakov's just afraid because he's afraid he can't. All right. So the question we have to figure out is that maybe, maybe there are other ways of justifying Yaakov's fear, uh, even if fear is ordinarily um, a vice as opposed to a virtue, and even if uh, right, Yaakov is a deeply religious person. So I have to try and uh, try and address that. That is what um, the Gemara says on Brachot Daftalam and Aleph. The Gemara says Rabbi Yaakov already Rabbi Yaakov already Rami Rabbi Yaakov already posed the following contradiction. Ktiv is a pasuk which God says to Yaakov, "Look, I'm with you, and I'm going to guard you wherever you go." Uchtiva yira Yaakov mo, and then it says Yaakov is afraid. Isn't that a contradiction? Amar shema yigrom hachet. So the answer is that Yaakov, even though God promised him, Yaakov is afraid that he is going to that he has sinned in some way, or that he will sin in some way, which vacates God's promise. So that's a very challenging religious notion. Um, if God promises you, in what sense should you be afraid? And the right reaction should be, we would think, to become virtuous, right? Be do do better deeds. What does fear help? Uh, right. So this is a challenging notion, uh, right? Why and to what is this just? Why is, is this just the kind of paralyzing fear that Bechor Shor is talking about? That every in every situation in life, Yaakov has to Yaakov's terrified because he thinks he may have sinned. So that doesn't sound like a um, that doesn't sound like a very constructive uh, situation. There is a pasuk which says Ashrei Adam Tamid, right? Blessed is the person or fortunate is the person who is constantly afraid. But there's also another pasuk which criticizes uh, the Jews for being constantly afraid. And even the pasuk which says Blessed is he who is constantly afraid is problematic because it's the pasuk the, the Gemara and Gittin quotes to talk about Rav Zechariah ben Afkulus, um, who is the the one who, in the Gemara and Gittin, brings about the destruction of the temple by being afraid to uh, it seems to um, to issue a ruling that would lead that would enable the Jews to preserve themselves against the the Roman libel uh, that they're refusing the emperor's uh, sacrifices. So it's very problematic the idea that really one should be in genuine fear, not fear of God, but in fear. Uh, right, uh, the entire time. So I have to try to figure out: is there a way, is there a way around this? Right, because we could just read all these as a very. It was telling you that Yaakov had lots of good qualities, but courage wasn't one of them. I have to figure out if that really seems a plausible reading of Yaakov's character, in light of uh, in light of the other stories. He does confront the shepherds. Um, whether it doesn't doesn't seem Yaakov doesn't seem to be a coward. So that's right. So that's a hard reading. Okay, so the Medrash Lekach Tov um, says, and I'm not quoting the earliest source here, I'm just, I tried to, to make the source sheet efficient by quoting the, the source which expressed the idea uh, in the shortest possible fashion. So the Medrash Lekach Tov says, Yaakov, it's not that Yaakov's constantly afraid, it's he has a specific reason to be afraid right now. Lamani Yare, why is Yaakov afraid? Lefish avar hamakom levet el, loasaha isur. So when Yaakov is on his way towards Lavan, Right, he has the dream which God appears at the top of the letter, and he right, he promises God, if you'll be with me, that when I come back to that place, I will right to Beit El, I will give you a tenth of my goods, and he hasn't. So the Beit El Yaakov is a really good reason to be afraid, because um, 
he he himself said it can ready said to God, if you're with me, then when we get back to this point, I will do this, and he didn't do it. So that's a really good reason to be afraid. Yaakov has right, he's not he's not afraid uh, generically. He's not anxious. He's guilt. Right, he has he has guilt. The question, of course, is why doesn't he just give ten percent of his stuff to God right now and solve the problem there? Maybe he thinks that would look like bribery. It wouldn't wouldn't be appropriate. Uh, also, the Medrash doesn't tell us why Yaakov didn't do it. Um, so even if we absolve Yaakov of the charge of cowardice, uh, we might we're creating a worse charge. Why is Yaakov not keeping his word? If he has a reason not to keep his word, so then why is he afraid? Okay, really interesting, uh, interesting challenge. The Kliakar um, thinks that that's a bit of a stretch, so he finds a different sin that Yaakov's afraid. Yaakov thinks that he flattered Esav. He thinks that in this confrontation, uh, because he flattered Esav. That's right. And he says, Yaakov, so says your servant, Yaakov. So that itself is a sin. But this is kind of a circularity. Because he did, right, the reason he greeted Esav that way is because he was afraid. So Yaakov's feeling guilty because he was afraid. Now he's afraid because he acted out of, right, because he acted out of fear. So this is just building uh, on itself and doesn't really in any way um, excuse, um, excuse Yaakov. Um, so this approach, right, this idea that, um, the, that Yaakov Right, so the, the Kliakar says that Yaakov's initial fear causes him to make a mistake, which causes him to be now afraid that he no, he's no longer virtuous because he, 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 committed, he committed a wrong act out of fear, and maybe that's a wrong act as well. Um, so the Nitziv and the Malbim um, each take, although again, the, there are antecedents to this, and medieval antecedents, I just picked the ones uh, who say it in the shortest and most interesting way. Uh, Nitziv says that Vayira Yaakov Ma'ur Vayetzerlo means that yeah Bayetzer means that he experienced distress, right? Not that it's not really an intensification of fear, Redak's not convincing that way. Um so the it's even the Malbin both say the Bayetzer low is that Yaakov experiences distress because he's afraid and he thinks he shouldn't have been. Right? Well Yaakov thinks he did wrong. Maybe that's even Shemiygromachet. Yaakov thinks he did wrong by being afraid. And so now He's right, doubly afraid uh, because of that. Because being afraid is uh, being afraid is wrong. So Nitziv says this is a very right. This is a very uh, common thing. By why, why is he in distress? He's in distress because he had the experience of fear. He knows that he shouldn't. So Nitziv says when you experience fear, that right when you're not confident that um, you treat that as an omen. Or as a cause, you're not likely to fight well when you're generally you're generally afraid. Um, so that's Nitziv's, Nitziv's general sense that Yaakov is afraid that and he, because, and he thinks that his fear, like as as when you're afraid in battle, if you know the people around you are afraid, so then it's likely that you're going to break, and that's the most dangerous thing to do, uh, at least in classical in classical warfare, right? When you break the front, so then right you lose all the advantages of a joint of a joint defense. So Yaakov thinks that he does he does not have the emotional wherewithal to withstand Esav, even though he has the strength, so his fear feeds on itself. Um, okay, the Malbim, right, makes, right, as opposed to Nitziv, who makes a pragmatic claim of this, the Malbim makes an explicitly a moral claim. People who trust in God, who have faith in God, have no reason to be afraid of human beings. And the, the fact that they experience Yirah 
demonstrates that they do not have a proper faith. Okay, right? He quotes the Pasuk, he says, What are you doing being afraid of a mortal human being? And you forget about God. If you really trust in God, then you should not be afraid at all. Bifrat, right? Yaakov has a specific promise from God. He doesn't have to rely on generic religious faith. He should not have been afraid. And then we get into right, the, the actually fear leads to its own result. And Nitziv gave a naturalistic way in which Nitziv leads, leads to its end result. But the Malvim says, God does not perform miracles that go right beyond the natural order. Except for people who have perfect faith. So now Yaakov says, I'm afraid. So now he's in distress because he knows that if he had not been afraid, there would have been nothing to be afraid of. But now that he is afraid, there's a lot to be afraid of because now he's not worthy of miracles anymore. Uh, and that's why, says the and that's why Yaakov now starts engaging in preparation for warfare. He hasn't previously because up until now, until he experiences fear, he assumes that God will take care of him. But now he knows that once he experiences fear, that God won't. Right? So the Malbim essentially says that the the only thing really to fear is fear itself. Uh, right? If you're not afraid, then nothing can happen to you. But once you're afraid, then all the other things that you're afraid of might happen. Because God will no God because God will no longer um save you. Um, and this is an idea that has roots in um it certainly has deep roots in uh, traditional Jewish thought. I think the, the parallel that comes to mind immediately is the uh, Ramban's position. The Ramban says that um, that medicine is a bidiyavad, right? You know, really, people on the highest level would be, be able to faith heal. They would just pray to God and God would heal them. But he says, you know what? Most people That only works if you have perfect faith. Since none of us have perfect faith, we should all go to doctors because... Once you're not afraid, right? The natural order, things are really, things are really dangerous. Um, okay, so what you have right is a whole set of, um, right, really a whole set of, of commentaries that depict Yaakov as the virtue he has. Perhaps, right? This goes back to the, you know one of the issues that everybody, um, right? Yitzchak represents Gvura and Yaakov represents Emet. There's a pasuk Titain Emet Liyakov, and everybody has to figure out how can Yaakov be the how can Yaakov be the uh, representative of truth when Yaakov de- uh, seems to engage in um, in deception with his father? Um, is you know is engages in I guess you know, justifiable uh, sharp practice with Levan and Levan and his salary, um, and then it seems to also right to to lead to his children deceiving him about Yosef, deceiving him at Shechem. So how does Yaakov become uh, become a met? So one possibility is that the the common ground of all these interpretations is that Yaakov is honest about him with himself. There's no self deception. There's no failure to realize what he is. Yaakov is afraid, and he doesn't pretend to not be afraid. He's not unaware of not being afraid. He's afraid, and that fear gives him distress. Um, and that fear may be. Just a, a lack of a lack of a particular kind of of courage, um, as uh, Ibn Ezra is, is reported to have said, or it may be guilt about specific sins. Um, it may be a kind of paralysis which may be which may feed on itself. 
Um, or, um, right, you know, right, so we don't, but Yaakov, nobody thinks that, right, that Yaakov is unaware of the cause of his distress, right? I mean, nobody thinks that Yaakov is, experiences some kind of uh, free-floating anxiety or dread. Um, no, Yaakov is afraid, and he knows exactly what he's afraid of. Okay, these ideas, right, this, this notion that um, that Yaakov is, um, Yaakov is afraid, and that fear is a religious vice is really interesting expressed in Midrash Rabbah. Uh, so Midrash Rabbah uh, begins by saying, So Rav Pinchas B'Shem Ruvain says, there were two people that God gave them promises, and nonetheless they were afraid. And who are those two people? The Habachur Shebe'avot, the best, right, the chosen one among the forefathers, and the chosen one among the prophets. Right? Yaakov is the chosen one because there's a Pasuk that says, right? God chose Yaakov. And God said to him, I'm with you. And nonetheless, he's afraid. And Moshe, right, is also a verse that describes Moshe specifically as Bechiro, the chosen of God. And God told him, when he, expl- when he asks how he can go to, to Paro. And in the end, God, Hashem says to Moshe, don't be afraid. Right, there's no reason to be. If you tell somebody, "Don't be afraid," that means they're afraid. So we see that Moshe experiences fear. So this is an interesting notion. Like that. On the one hand, it seems like we're being critical of fear, and on the other hand, we're saying that while we're being critical of fear, there is nobody who doesn't experience it. Even the people, right? The greatest of the. Right, he says the chosen. I don't know, but in context, I think that's supposed to mean something like the greatest. Right? The greatest, the greatest of the forefathers, the greatest of the prophet of the prophets, they have specific promises, and yet they experience fear. So it seems like this is a um, that the matter on the one hand is critical, but on the other hand is it's critical. What it says is this was a vice, but it's a vice that is inescapable humanly because if Moshe Rabbeinu and Yaakov Avinu, with, with whom God appears to and says, "I will be with you," are nonetheless afraid, so then you can't really hold anyone else accountable for being afraid. Right? Fear is something you have to live with as opposed to something that you're supposed to um, eradicate. And that's, in fact, uh, Sir Rebrachia uh, and Rechobo and Amir Shmuel Nachman say that the Jews would have been destroyed, they were worthy of destruction in the time of Haman because they're all very afraid, except that uh, what they say is, well, how can you blame us for being afraid? We're just like Yaakov. Right? So this matter is an interesting ambivalence. Right? It it imagines that perfection would be un, right, being unafraid, but perfection is unattainable. Okay, that's the end of the arc, which assumes that Yaakov should not have been afraid, uh, but was afraid, either because it was a lack of character, or because, or legitimately because really what his fe- his fear came from actual guilt. But whether fear is the best reaction to guilt is an open question. Um, or just be, right, or Yaakov wasn't unusually afraid, which Radak seems to think, right? He's very afraid. Um, or did Sivan Malbim seem to think that his fear builds on itself? But Yaakov was human. And the point is just to say that Yaakov was human. And maybe, right, although this Medrash doesn't say, doesn't ever explain Vayetzer, though, maybe um, what bothers Yaakov is not the consequentialist visions of Sivan Malbim that, oh, I'm afraid, now I won't have a miracle. I'm afraid now I won't be able to stand up in battle. But Yaakov, up till that point, thought he had perfect faith. 
And the experience of fear, because he's honest with himself, makes him realize, oh my goodness, right? I, you know, that I'm as, as far from perfection as ever I was. Okay. Again, that's the interpretational line that assumes that um, Yaakov should not have been afraid or that fear is a weakness or a vice, which is best overcome, although it can't necessarily be overcome. Uh, and maybe it's particularly it can't be overcome if you sinned. And it, right, you have to you have to be afraid. But if you hadn't sinned, you wouldn't be afraid. So fear is a consequence of vice as opposed to being a vice itself. Okay, but now the Medrash reverses it. And, and um, here we get to what I think is one, one of my favorite lines in rabbinic literature. Right? Don't think that Yira and Sarah refer to the same kind of uh, experience. What Yaakov was afraid because he thought he might kill. Right? So Yaakov's fear is not a um, is not a fear for himself. It's a fear for right. It's not a fear for his body. It's a fear for his soul. But Yitzchelo shuli harig, and right, and and he's distressed lest he be killed. Right. So there's right this this equivalence. Right. That Yaakov has two kinds of fears. One is the fear that he one is the fear that he'll kill. The other is the fear that he the the fear that he will be killed. I think is one is an amazing moral moment at the um at sort of the the paradigmatic conflict Yaakov and Esav in rabbinic literature. Um, that we portray Yaakov, and I think that this is seen as a virtue. I don't think anyone criticizes Yaakov for this. Um, we perceive Yaakov as being as tormented by the possibility of killing uh, as of being killed. And in fact, in this Midrash, we'll see that it gets reversed, but this Midrash says, Vayira Yaakov, the first experience is he doesn't want to kill. And the secondary experience is that uh, uh, is that he not be killed. Um Okay, right. So he says, "Look, if if I beat him, then he'll, right. If he kills, if he beats me, he'll kill me. If I beat him, I'll kill him. Either way, this is a bad, this is a, this is a bad idea." Okay, then, um, right. Then there's a whole story about why Yaakov is afraid because Esav actually has virtues, uh, which is also a powerful thing. That at the moment that somebody is coming towards you, and so that your temptation might be to dehumanize, to demonize them, and to say they have no virtues at all. Instead, what Yaakov does is he looks for the virtues in his opponent and wonders whether maybe God should be on their side as opposed to his. So Esav has the virtue of having lived in Eretz Yisrael while Yaakov lived in Chuslaris. Esav has the virtue of having lived with his parents and honor, right, and fulfilled the mitzvah of honor, honor and respecting them, whereas Yaakov, whereas, Yaakov, um, whereas Yaakov had not, and it might be, right, as Alimedrish puts in the, that uh, Esau said to himself, and somehow Yaakov perceived this, that Esau said, I'm, only, I'm going to kill Yaakov when Yitzchak is dead. So if Esau is coming towards him now, probably Yitzchak is dead. And that means that Yaakov will never get to fulfill Kibbut Avayim. Um, and so Esau has that virtue. Okay, so Ravina Bar Simon says that um, Yaakov, that God God tells Yaakov, no, no, don't worry, right? I told you, go back to your, go back to Eretz Avotecha, right? Go back to your, your, sorry, your ancestral land. So that'll work, right? Don't worry. It's, it's still down to your ancestors. So then Yaakov says, aha, but I made you promise, God, so to speak, right, that you'll guard me on this path until I get back to where I came from, and now I'm back home, so maybe your promise is invalid, right? So but, so that's why God told him um, at the end of last week's parasha, Shuv I'll be with you. So God has taken away all of, uh, God has taken away Yaakov's reason for fear, 
Yaakov is still afraid. So why is he still afraid? Ella, so the, the answer is that there are no promises to the righteous in this world. So this is a right. So here we have in this in this in Midrash Rabbah after the first approach, which thinks that Yaakov's fear is unjustified because for people who have faith there shouldn't be fear. Uh, we here the Midrash offers us two different reasons for fear. One reason for fear, right, is moral fear, and moral fear is a virtue, not a vice, perhaps. Um, and secondly, maybe the whole premise of the previous argument is wrong, and maybe divine promises should not prevent you from experiencing fear, but olam hazeh, because none of God's promises are uh, are perfect. And we quote a whole series of other people um, in which, um, right, when we go back to, to, to Moshe, and we put in, we put in um, David HaMelech, all of whom God promises, and they're still afraid. They're still afraid because lots of things can happen between now and then. So this is the radical opposite approach that um, there are no religious promises. It's not that, right, and it's not a weakness if religious promises don't um, don't let don't enable you to get rid of fear because actually, uh, religious promises are not intended to be unconditional. There's always a risk that something will there's always a risk that something will go wrong, um, probably because of a lack of uh, of a lack of virtues. That's a really interesting, radical religious idea. We could respond to it um, by saying that just because there is no promise in this world, and they're very careful, there is presumably, that if you're virtuous, you will in fact get your reward, but you can't be sure that you'll get re your reward in, you'll get rewarded and protected in this world. So the reaction to that will be the Socratic reaction. So maybe the, what's wrong about fear is that you're worried about the wrong thing? Why should you be? Why should you care about Olam at all? If every right, if you if you trust that God is just, so in the end, everything will work out. So that I think is you know is a general religious challenge as to how you how you right. If you really believe that right, if you really believe in Olam and you think that Olam is so much better than all of Olam so then why do you right? Why would you be afraid um, in Olam Right, you would just uh, at some point you know take a Dumbledore approach, say right to the well-prepared soul, so then death is just another adventure. And not even an adventure, because you know exactly where you're going. Um, so I, I think this is a very challenging theological notion, but I think it should be aware, as like, you know, as opposed to thinking that, no, really, the whole way of Jewish tradition is that bitachon, true bitachon would be the absence of fear. Actually, um, there is a tradition that says that true bitachon, um, not only, you know, there are positions that say true bitachon, doesn't overcome human nature, and then they say, no, true, true B'dichon says nothing about Olam Hazeh. And the simplest reading of this Midrash is that we're not criticizing Yaakov uh, for experiencing fear about Olam Hazeh, that fear about Olam Hazeh is a legitimate aspect of human nature. Okay, so now we're going to play off that, the the series of lines that assumes that Yira Yaakov addresses the two sides of the equation. So the first thing to get, right, is that Rashi reverses the order. Right, the Medrash said right, he's afraid he was Yira refers to killing and and distress refers to being killed. Rashi has the other way around. Um right, that he, right, that he's first he's that he thinks first about being killed and next about killing others. So that's a really interesting uh, moral question. Which do we think is preferable going into battle? 
uh, should be more worried about doing the wrong about doing the wrong thing, about killing others. Maybe even if it's not wrong, you should worry about killing others. Uh, that was an article I thought about writing this week and didn't in the end. Um, and I don't think we'll get to those Makara, but, have, but if you look at the source sheet later, you'll see a fascinating discussion amongst the uh, Mizrahi and the Maharal about um, whether one should experience spiritual trepidation, even about justified, even about violence um, or killing in justified self-defense. Okay, so that's Ra Rashi reverses it, reverses the order of the Midrash. Chantolus uh, Yaakov Yosef, uh, right, the early, uh, early, uh, right, I guess, yeah, third generation Hasidic, uh, or maybe it's like first, first, um, says, Vayirasha Meherek, so he, 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 he says, Vayetzer, right, takes it right in classic Hasidic form, Vayetzer has to relate to the Yetzer Hara and the Yetzer Tov. Um, right, he, right, so, and Hasidim generally, right, taken, right, ex uh, intensify the inward, um, the inwardness of the Pasuk. So Yaakov's afraid, Shema Yehareg, He's afraid that it, that he will be killed because he'll he'll surrender to desire. He's afraid that he won't kill his yitzhara, or he's afraid he's afraid lest he sorry lest he kills yitzhara. Because it's a failure, it's a failure to kill the yitzhara as opposed to uh, to bend it to your will, right? To cause it to submit. Garti, uh, right? So Levan Garti, uh, right? We interpret as saying, right? Garti becomes Taryag, that Yaakov kept all the mitzvot uh, with um, with Levan, and he enabled, he bent Levan to his, um, to perhaps to his will. I uh, have to see how Tol Yaakov Yosef interprets it. The underlying claim, Tol Yaakov Yosef, he makes it internal in Yaakov, but he's really making, I think, a generic claim that when confronted by an opponent, it's always a failure if you have to destroy them. As opposed to find some way to turn them to the good. So, Yaakov is afraid that he will surrender, and he's also afraid that the only way he'll be able to avoid surrender is by destroying the other, and that is a failure. It's a failure internally in terms of in terms of your of all your drives, and it's a failure externally in terms of your enemies. Okay, um, the told us. Yitzchak, right now, right, it is not related to the Toldos Yaakov Yosef, or even one generation earlier. The Toldos Yitzchak is uh, is a medieval work, as opposed to the Toldos Yaakov Yosef, is Hasidic. Uh, so he quotes Rashi, and he says, "Vayomer b'harigato meod." When Vayiras says very much, "Aval b'harigato atacherim lor meod ki bar lachargechahashkem lahargo." So he says, "Look, Rashi says that Vayira means lest you be uh, lest you be killed, and Vayetzer lo." Is lest you kill others, and the intensifier maod only appears by the first. So obviously Rashi thinks that you should that you're entitled to be uh, more worried, more more afraid of being killed than of killing, because after all, killing that's justified. So there are a number of powerful things about this. One is that he seems to take that position that Yaakov is still distressed about killing, even about wholly justified killing. Um, so this is a you know, a whole debate. Um, in the realm of like how we're how we how we're supposed to relate to war, milchemet mitzvah, or if we're supposed to experience any guilt at all about the deaths of our enemies. Um, so I have always argued yes. Um, some of my colleagues have argued no. I remember that uh, one a friend at uh, Harvard Hill is now a prominent right wing uh, uh, political figure. 
uh, you said, you know, you, you know, and he's correct. He'd been in the army. I haven't that you can't run an army uh, with people being constantly afraid morally. Um, on the other hand, I think that the alternative is is equally dangerous. And um, and I had a, a really fun discussion for a terrible motion some years ago about military ethics with um, Asa Kasher, who wrote the Israel uh, part of the Israeli military code and uh, and the chief ethicist for the Canadian uh, Canadian army, I think. I think that you know, that's a really interesting way to balance it. The Holy Zuchik says that there is, even when it's justified, there still is guilt. But he says not as much guilt because it says Ma'od about Vayira, and, which is talking about being killed and not about killing others, which is Vayeser. But now we remember that the Medrash had it reversed. The Medrash said Vayira was talking about killing others and Vayeser was talking about being killed. So that means that tells you that according to the Midrash, it's the other way around. The Yaakov is more bothered by the prospect of killing and the prospect of um, being killed. So that, that I think, is a really, is a really powerful notion. I, I will say, uh, autobiographically, um, when, uh, after, when, I was, uh, when I was leaving high school, uh, and so I was considering what to do the next year, so when one of the, it was a little early, for, it wasn't yet standard for everyone to go to Israel, um, although what really we did was you went to... Um, you went. You went to Y. You, you left high school after three years. You went to YU for uh, um, for college for your first year, and then, at least in in the top share, my share, I think twenty three out of twenty five guys went to Israel the next year. Uh, the question was where, and people offered all sorts of possibilities. But I was really at that point the only place I was interested in going possibly um, was Yeshiva Haritzion. It was Gusht. Uh, it was Rebbechlinstein. And at that point, Americans had to. Um, Americans had to hold guns on uh, on guard duty, uh, and I decided I really didn't want to hold a gun. I didn't want to be in a position where I might uh, where I might have to kill somebody. Um, I didn't want to drive either at that point. I didn't get my license until I was twenty five, um, and then I really worried for for a long time that um, you know that I said it was because I didn't want to kill people, but that maybe it was because I was afraid of being killed. And so it was actually a very liberating moment for me when, before the first Gulf War, uh, I, actually, I had a um, I, I had a conference in America in the middle of the year. I was in Israel for the year, and I had a conference in America uh, that right just before the um, the deadline uh, the deadline expired from that we were going to bomb Baghdad, and I c- could have stayed home. I was uh, my parents offered me a vacation anywhere in the world I wanted for the duration of the war. <laughs> And uh, I said, no, I really belong in Israel. So I went back. You know, like my parents uh, bought me bought me the um, ticket on the ticket on the uh, last flight on the last flight back to Israel before the war, before they canceled flights, and I made it back. And that was very, you know, that was very important to me to know that actually, no, the reason I hadn't, the reason I, did, I, I didn't want to shoot people, it didn't mean that I was afraid of being in the right place and helping if I, uh, I was supposed to be. So I think there's a really important thing in this midrash. Um, and it's uh, it's valuable to to you know to note that maybe we should be more afraid of killing than that uh, than of being killed. On the other hand, you know it's, it's not a universal, universalizable principle, and uh, you know I think that um, some years later an American accidentally shot somebody while standing guard duty at Gush, and then they changed the rules so that Americans were not allowed to hold guns anymore, which I think was a much wiser move. <laughs> uh, anyway, perhaps I would have gone had they changed that um, that years that years earlier. Okay. Um, the Be'er, Be'er Mayim Chaim has a really complicated way around this. What he says is that, of course, Yaakov is 
not worried about killing people legitimately because you're allowed to do that. So there's no basis for guilt. What he says is, but here, and this is, you know, is a, a strikingly you know, modern thing. He says that what's going on here is that Esav creates the appearance of friendship. And Esav is trying to, right, is trying to get Yaakov to attack him without Esav having appeared to engage in aggression. It's a really interesting move, right? You take a large army and you dress them up in tuxedos. And you say, we're all coming, right? We're coming as your honor guard. But you can't tell whether they're really coming as your honor guard or whether if you let them in, right, it's just a Trojan horse. Um, so what Yaakov is afraid is that although he knows that Esau's intentions are evil, that if he attacks Esau, he's going to create a Chil Hashem, a desecrate God's name, or we would say nowadays, bad PR. Um, and that's right. So it's Yaakov. So according to the Bear Mayim Chaim, the Hasidic commentary, Yaakov is facing this, you know, classic modern issue of asymmetrical warfare. Uh, it was the enemy who doesn't declare themselves. And if you engage in self-defense, then you will be uh, perceived as the aggressor in the world. And that's what Yaakov is really worried about. Okay. So that's right. A very modern notion doesn't tell us what Yaakov should do. Yaakov has a basis for being, right? This is a fear. It's, you know, it's not a, it's a religious fear as opposed to a moral fear. He's not worried that he's killing people who don't deserve to be killed. That we'll perhaps see later. But he's worried that he will be perceived as killing people. And Kedush and Chil Hashem are vital religious categories. So, you know, so maybe you can't... Are you allowed to defend yourself at the cost of creating bad? You know, the impression that you're a bad person and everyone identifies you as a religious person, right? So that's a really... Difficult moral quandary, which is set up very, uh, very, uh, very, very, cla- very classically here. And then he says, and also, he loves his father, and his father is not going to believe that Esav had negative intentions. So not only will he be killing Esav and be thought evil in the eyes of the world, he's also hurting somebody uh, whom he loves. So right, so Berbayim Chaim says Yaakov has a reason for right. His paralysis isn't being paralyzed by fear, it's you know, it's a sort of legitimate moral paralysis. Now, of course, he assumes, right, that Esau, in fact, has evil intentions, and that's one of the, you know, the deep ambiguity in the text, um, that it's not at all clear whether um, whether Yaakov is right or not. You can read the text in a way where Esau never has any negative intentions at all. And right, all everything here is in Yaakov's own mind. Uh, Aviva Zorenberg, um, beautifully... Um, reads the Chama um, Leibowitz points this out already, right? When, when Yaakov faces, wrestles with the man, it says Yaakov was left alone, and right, and a man wrestled with him. So if he's alone, how can a man wrestle with him? So the solution is he must be an angel. But that's you know, and you can externalize it. That's the way Rashi does it. It's the angel of Esav. But and the Chama Leibowitz and then Avivah Zornberg building on that both say no. It must be an internal psychological battle with Yaakov. Yaakov has to vanquish the Esav within himself. Um, or you might say he has to vanquish the image he has of Esav. I don't know. That's not the way Aviva Zornberg reads it, but I think it has a certain um, power. Before he can face Esav for real, but there's really never any battle with Esav at all. Esav's what Esav does is entirely determined by Yaakov, and how it right. And you know it could be that you could read it as you know that Esav, uh, which we saw you know initially in the Rishonim, that Esav, as long as Yaakov doesn't come, walk in guilty. And then Esav will react with friendship, but he despises weakness. Right, so right, so we can read it. Oh yeah, so there are lots of ways to read it in that um, 
in which Esau doesn't have these intentions. Okay, so the but the interpretation that I really wanted to build towards, and I think is um, probably uh, probably the way we'll have to end this year is that of the Al Sheikh. Uh, the Al Sheikh is uh, in Sfat in the um, in the 16th century as part of the group the, the, around um, Yosef Kara and, and um, I believe always terrible history. Um, and his commentary has been enormously popular over the years, but I, I don't get to, I don't I don't get to quote it very often. I don't I think I fail to appreciate it uh, sufficiently. So I'm always glad of the opportunity when I when I get something that seems really powerful out of him, and I hope over the years I'll get to appreciate it more consistently. So here's what he says: he says Maybe the way to understand this pasuk is as follows: Behu, kira saras hanefesh. Penya Harogat Achirim, Yaakov has has soul distress, lest he kill others. Bitsarat Haguf, but he also has physical distress, Penya Harguhu, right, that lest they kill him. Hain Shtayim Raog Delot Milutakain. These are two great things that can't really be justified. You can't fix them once you have them. Sarat Hanefesh, right, what's the fear of his soul? Ipnei Shakol Bidei Shemayim Chutzmi Yeratshemayim. Because Everything is in the hands of heaven, but Yerachemayim. It's Tariyach Shadam Yasaha Ikar, and you have to you have to do the right thing, right? God does not control your choices, so there's right. So he's afraid that he's going to do the wrong thing, all right? So that's the right. That's the, the right, so the right. So the question is now I have to figure out. So Shemay Harogat Acherim, Yaakov's afraid he's going to kill other people when that's the wrong thing. That's very why it's the wrong thing. Now, the Alshech is following the Medrash as opposed to Rashi, right? Because the first thing, the thing that really bothers Yaakov is the condition of his soul, lest he kill others. Because since everything's in the hands of heaven except Yerat Shemayim, he's responsible for his own actions. The second thing, which is also great, but probably not as great, is lest he be killed. Since the people coming to kill him are free-willed people, right? They're, they're possessors of choice. Uh, right, and God does not prevent anyone from carrying out their designs. Because if God presented, prevented people from carrying out their designs, there would be no free choice. If people would not have the capacity to carry out their designs, then reward and punishment would make no sense at all. Right? Therefore, God cannot prevent evil people from carrying out their designs, even against others. And he quotes Nebuchadnezzar talking to Hanani and his Chavirav when he says, "Right, um, who is the God who will save him? Who will save you from my hands?" Right? Meaning Nebuchadnezzar says, "Right, God has to give me free will. If I have no capacity to harm you, so then my choices are meaningless. Right? I can decide I'm going to kill you, but I know that God's going to stop me." So in what sense is right? I don't really mean it. So God has to actually let right. So the only way that there can be reward and punishment is if God actually allows you to control your actions. Right? This is a uh, right. The 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 extreme counter position is the position of Rav Sadak Lublin, who says that means that all your actions are controlled. The only the only the only thing you can control is whether you act. In awareness, right? Yerat Shemayim is in awareness that God determines all your actions, or under the illusion that you can, that you have freedom, right? So the only right that's a that I think is the you know is the is the radical counterposition, which I don't think is 
uh, anything like the normative Jewish position, but is but it exists in the tradition, so and it's fun to quote. Uh, but the Al Sheikh takes right position. No, that right. There's no. Essentially, he says, right. There's no. There's no. Re, that there's no have to for tzaddikim in this world, not because there's a reason that God won't make unconditional promises, uh, because you'll always sin, but because the nature of the world is that God can't guarantee you against the wicked, because if God guaranteed you against the wicked, then the wicked would not have free will. Um, so now he reads this. He reads these psukim into Hillim as a right, as an internal narrative in Yaakov's mind. Right, this is again where Becha Hashem Chasiti. Right, I, I, right, I have faith in you, God. Alei Voshali Alam. I'll never be uh, right, be disappointed, uh, be humiliated. With your tzaka, Palteni, rescue me. Ate Elai Aznecha Mehira. Turn your ears to me rapidly, right? So that the Alshay is going to pick up on this thing. Why, why rapidly? Hatzileni and save me, right? And be a be a fortress um, to a house, right? A house, a house of you know, with um, with strongholds to save me. So the the Alshay is going to read this as a consecutive line. He says, "Al Kenamar Becha Hashem Chasiti Alevosha Leolam." So what does Leolam mean, right? Forever. So that that that's a clue. That must be talking about Olam Haba, right? Lo Olam Hazev Al Sarat Haguf, not. I, where I won't, I won't be disappointed uh, in this world or in the next world, right? I won't. Uh, I, right, I have trust. That, I have trying to have trust that God will protect both my body and my soul. But although I'm trying, I'm afraid that I won't actually merit having my body saved. Because they have free will. Right, so I ask you, God, anyway, to save me out of your, right, out of your, not out of the normal way of the world, but out of staka. Right, so somehow in in staka, God can save me this time, but it can't be a rule. I think, right, this is maybe a projection that um, if God always saves the righteous, so then the world goes away. But staka is God, right, is that God can sometimes bend the rules. Uh, because it doesn't take away free will if God sometimes chooses to save people. But what about my killing? Right, that also scares me a great deal. Here he says right, a fascinating claim. He says, Now I'm asking you, God, about that. Right, About my body, I asked you, please save me. I know you can't do it all the time, but this time you can do it and it won't mess up the... Right, Would it destroy some... Um, isn't that um, right? Tevia says right. Would it destroy some great eternal, some great eternal plan if I were a wealthy man? Right. So, but David says right. It will destroy a great eternal plan if you save me this time. But he says, what about the spiritual fear that I'm going to kill? He says, Turn your ear to me rapidly and save me. Pen lo atzmi, lest I do not, I don't build up the strength. To withhold myself, if you wait too long to save me, um, right says Yaakov, I won't be able to resist attacking first. But if you save me rapidly, God, so I have enough faith in myself that I can um, that I can avoid attacking Esav. Um, briefly, uh, briefly. So this to me is in a 
It's an amazing um, psychological reading of Yaakov. Yaakov is confronting this situation. He knows he might be killed, and he doesn't, and he understands that he can't say, God, my virtues should always protect me from the wicked, because that would ruin the nature of the world. So he asks God, but this time, save me. And then Yaakov says, and you also can't prevent me from experiencing it to tests, right? Because if you always made sure that I never had to face real decisions, so then that would equally take away the whole purpose of the world. But I'm telling you that there's a point at which I'm not sure I can pass this test. That you can get in situations, right, and it's the it's the reverse of what the Horshore said. The Horshore said that what causes Yaakov distress is the paralysis. He doesn't know what to do, and so he's frozen. The Alshech says, no, what causes Yaakov distress is his fear that he won't be able to remain frozen. Uh, this, if you want historical analogy, right, this is sort of going back to the um, the, 60, the 67 war, where everyone knows there's going to be a war, uh, but the question, but whoever attacks first is going to be the aggressor, and so the you know the, the, what you have to do is you have to wait till the other side attacks first, even though the other side has done all these things, you're closing the Straits of Tehran, that uh, right that really are declarations of war. So Yaakov says, for whatever reason, probably, whether it's because he thinks he would really be unjustified in killing Esav first, because Esav has choice, and until Esav attacks him, he has no right to attack first, uh, or because he's worried about bad PR. So Yaakov says to God, I understand that what I have to do here is remain frozen. That's the right thing. But what I'm afraid of is that if I do the right thing, A, I might get killed because it's the right thing to do, but the right thing to do doesn't help because um, if the other side attacks first because that gives them all sorts of advantages. Uh, right? And that you can read Michael Oren's book about the 67 war and see exactly how this, uh, how this calculation played out in Israel. And secondly, he says that um, I'm afraid that I won't be able to stop myself from attacking first. Um, but I think I can do it for a little bit. All right, so it's a really, really fascinating read of, you know, where Yaakov, again, his his introspection in this reading is amazing. Like, he knows what he can do, what he can't do. Uh, he recognizes how hard it is to do nothing in the face of a threat, but that's, uh, even if you know that's the right thing to do, but, um, but inaction can be as difficult to sustain as action. Uh, and then, right, so that's, that's what Yaakov prays, and then we have to read read on to find out if um, if God in fact grants him the saving him right away, uh, right? Whether the right because it doesn't happen until the next night, um, right? And really, I assume the way the Alshech reads this is that the fight Yaakov has with the angel uh, is really about this, right? Is whether he's capable of restraining himself from attacking until he finds out whether Esav intends to attack him. And in the end, perhaps because he he refrains from showing the first sign of animosity, Esav, um, um, in fact, um, in fact, um, acts in friendship towards him, and it turns out that Yaakov, that neither of Yaakov's fears come true. He neither kills or is killed. Okay, that's the uh, that's the end of my share, and so now would be a great time if people have questions to uh, ask them.
one thing in that last um, comment you made. So then when he's fighting the angel, I guess according to the Al-Shaf then, uh, when he's fighting the angel and the Vayagavakachrecho, so I guess it's the angel that touches Yaakov. I get right, that's how we understand it. So then in Yaakov is hurt. Is that the right, so he's waited, he's waited to wait, he like struggles with him but doesn't hurt him? Is that, is that, is that the impression? That's interesting, and you know, I have not, I have not read through the al on the Parsha. So right, so I'm projecting. Uh, I don't know how he reads the um, how he reads the injury of Yaakov, um, and I think it's probably unfair for me to speculate for him, uh, right? Why it is that Yaakov gets hurt in the battle? You know, I I would be tempted to push it, um, you know, and say that there's something about that you know that there's something he loses in the process of waiting. You know, even though he gains the strength, right? He, he right he overcomes. If I were to put it all together, I would say he overcomes. It's the ace of in him that wants to attack first, right? It's that we're 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 really he projects onto ace of his own his own aggressive tendencies, and therefore he has to attack first. Um, but when you but you lose something about yourself also when you when you um, when you discipline yourself to um, to inaction when you you naturally are an active kind of person, and yet the, and then yet then he recovers at the end of it. So yeah, I would I would I think you could build the whole thing, but I don't want to. Blame it on on Al Sheikh because I haven't read it all the way through. So by all means, okay. read Reis Al Sheikh and see what he says. Um, yeah. Uh, okay. Other questions? It, be, I think it was the first parish they said that I don't remember who it was, but uh, that Bayetzer was another word for fear. Yeah, Radak. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of we have a lot of words for fear in Hebrew. We do. Uh, just to me, like all the other Erushim are much, you know, it just seems Vayetzer uh, sounds like, you know, something Tsar, right? Not, but it's not Pacha, it's not. I don't know. Yeah, so this is, right, so this is, you know, this is a general sensibility. Um, I think that um, most of us who are trained to read rabbinically, you know, we're so you know we're trained to think that if you vary the word, it must be you vary the meaning. But Radak is comfortable saying, and, and and he's not alone, that sometimes you vary the word because it's boring otherwise. And and as opposed to trying to to trying to tease out you know why this particularly precise connotation was here. This is why you said fear. That's why you said terror, anxiety, dread, distress. Right? You know, go through go through your thesaurus and make sure you use everyone exactly precisely. Radak says no, right? It would be boring if you use the same word over and over again, and that's saying again. He does this all through, all through biblical poetry, right? Which is all these parallel terms, and the Malbim each time tries to explain exactly what each of them says. We don't have Roger here, right? Tell us, give us all the examples. Um, but this is a wholly different literary sensibility. It relates to um, part of it is it assumes that part of the part of writing a holy book is that it has to have literary merit. It doesn't have literary merit that it, right, that it wouldn't be a holy book. So that's, I think, I, I, I um, I'm much happier with what I think, you know, with, with the approach which tries to find meaning. And in this case, I agree with you entirely. I think that, um, I think that, you know, sounds like it's supposed to, you know, but I think the more interesting question, which Radak relates to, is reading Vayetzer as an, do you read Vayetzer as an intensifier of Vayira? It's worse. 
Do you read it as a consequence, the way the Nesiv and Malbim do, right? Because Vayira, therefore Vayitzher? Or do you read it as just parallel things, right? There are two different things going on. He's, he's afraid, and he's and he's Vayitzher. I, I, I agree with you that just to say, well, we need to, you know, we, we could have said Ma'od Ma'od, but we said, right? That's really the question, right? Why didn't you just say Vayirayakov Ma'od Ma'od Ma'od? Why does he Vayirayakov Vayitzher low, right? So the Radak would say, because that's at some point, right? Very, very, very is inelegant. So we replace it right with something else. I I tend to agree with you. I just I, but I don't want to pretend that my sensibility is the tradition sensibility. It's a traditional sensibility, but you should be aware that Radak uh, doesn't Radak isn't bothered by the claim that nope, it just was more interesting to read that way. Uh, okay. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. Thank you.